0: Hi, and welcome to our podcast, Bodies and Souls, Conversations for the Jewish Woman. My name is Sarah. I'm a certified teacher and school leader. I'm passionate about education, and Antara, and Hasidus. My name is Rifki. I am a certified nurse, midwife, and college teacher. I am passionate about using our bodies and our innate spiritual abilities to serve Hashem in the most healthy and complete way possible. Together, we are pleased to present to you Bodies and Souls, fascinating and informative conversations for you the Jewish woman. Our aim is to provide you with multidimensional information that will inform and inspire you to be the best version of yourself, supporting your bodies and souls as they strive to be the very best in fulfilling our ultimate potential in bringing Mashiach now. Good morning and welcome to Bodies and Souls. Your host for today is Rifki Boyarski. Today we have the distinct pleasure and honor of having Mrs. DeVairi Crimen with us. Mrs. DeVairi Crimen is a public speaker who actually I know travels around the world. Um, she is a contributor to the AMI magazine. And today we're going to be discussing her new book, Even If I'm Not. And can we start off with you telling us a little bit about your journey towards writing this book and about yourself?
1: Sure. Hi, it's nice to be here. So my husband and I were married, it's 36 years, and, you know, we started a family. We had three kids in three years. My fourth child was born when my oldest was four. And he was, he looked perfectly normal at birth, but there was something, and the doctors couldn't tell us what it was exactly, but he was weak, just a very weak baby. and. They, they checked and they checked. They couldn't figure out why. And as the time went on, they diagnosed him with FFT, failure to thrive, FTT. Sorry, he kept getting sicker and sicker. We didn't know what it was. And they said, you know, sometimes it happens. a baby's sick. It's just a fluke. It doesn't have to affect the future. Uh, he died when he was a few months old. While well, actually, while he was alive, my husband went to the rebbe for a bracha to the Lubavitcher rebbe, and the rebbe gave us a bracha for a healthy child at a set time and at the right time, which we understood to mean that this child was was not the set time and the right time. And then the baby died. We had another baby, not a healthy child. And that's when we realized that we're dealing with heredity. We're dealing with something much more serious. To make a long story short, the bracha of the Rebbe came true. We had a healthy child after that, Um, but we had four sick children, a healthy child in the middle. Her name is bracha. And so there was 10 years of a lot of mitochondrial research. And basically the bottom line is that those four babies were born without the ability to manufacture energy. So, you know how people say, I have no energy. So, you know, we know actually what it looks like. And it looked perfectly normal, except that they couldn't produce energy. They couldn't convert the food that they ate into energy. It's, it's an enzyme missing in every cell of the body. And so this went on for 10 years, and we worked our way through it. We had four healthy children. For a long time, I, I was the woman who lost half her children and survived it and went on. And, you know, that was the big challenge of my life. And I learned how to get through it, and I was done. Um, except that my my oldest, my Yossi, when he was 23, see, he was a, he was a very geeky kind of a kid, very nerdy and very into learning and into nature. And yeah, he loved his mom. He was you know a funny kid, and he really really liked to learn. But he also loved nature. And because we're Chabad and we're all over the world, Yossi spent a summer in Costa Rica. He actually went there as learning director. His job was to teach, and they took the kids on trips, and Yossi went along. And they took the kids scuba diving, and he just. Loved it. And the interesting thing about this is that Yossi was not an adventurous kind of a kid. He wasn't into sports. What he loved was the fish. He just fell in love with the nature. And he came back to LA. He became a chassim, Started to get ready for his wedding. It was a Friday afternoon. It was 11 years ago. And that morning, we, my husband and I, we called a jeweler. We're three hours earlier. So it was like six in the morning. We called a jeweler in Montreal to order a wedding ring for his collar, Yossi's kala. She was. She wanted something very artsy. So she had told us that she didn't want the prongs around the diamond. She wanted it to look more smooth. So we told the, the jeweler that we want one that it looks like the diamond looks like it's like it's going to float. You know, the jeweler said it's called the tension setting. And my husband said, well, it's going to be a lot of tension if the diamond really does float, you know. So we were like in the <laughs> middle of all that. Then I, I went to school. Elsie was going for his uh, scuba diving certification. It was a regular Friday. I, I did what I had to do at school. I got home and I got a call from my husband that something had gone wrong with Yossi's equipment and we have to run to the hospital. I remember that I took a safer to Hillen with me, but I didn't open it because the whole way in the car, I kept saying the same thing again and again and again. I kept saying, this is not the babies. This is Yossi. And that, that really became like my, my davening. That's how I prayed the whole way. Because in my mind, it was very clear. I was just reminding Hashem and reminding myself the four babies were sick and they died. This is Yossi. He's healthy. He's getting married. He's not sick. He's not dying. My kids are divided very clearly into two. The four babies who are sick, they died. The four who lived, Yossi lived. And I kept saying that this is not the babies. This is Yossi. And when we got to the hospital, they asked us to go into a small room. And it's never a good thing when they ask someone to go into a small room. And I remember that feeling very strongly of not wanting to go in. And knowing that if I go, when things are going to be different, then I also remember the feeling of knowing that I had no choice. Then the doctors came in, and they said we did everything we could, and we're so sorry, and we lost Jesse. So the book is that year, the first year after after Jesse died. It's how we how we found our way back to ourselves, to each other, to Hashem.
0: I think what struck me about your book was there were all these little bits of like real life and humor and like these like these like moments that are just so real and then you're like thrown back into the tragedy and then you go back it's like it was it was really it was uplifting but it wasn't an easy read um in the sense that it was like so real it was it was a very real description what made you decide to go public with that level of like transparency and that level of realness?
1: I never actually decided. It wasn't the decision that I made. What happened was I ended up becoming a speaker and a writer. So the speaking, I was pretty much pulled away the whole first year. And then by Yossi's Yardzeit, I was asked by some people in the community. They made a, a gathering and they asked me if I would speak. So I spoke at Yossi's Yardzeit a little bit about what I had learned about myself and about neshama and about this process during the year. And at that talk, one of my former students came up to me. She's a shlucha in a house. And she said, I have somebody in my community going through a very hard time right now. Could you please speak there? So I spoke there. And then somebody at that talk came up to me. So it kind of just, it wasn't like I made a decision to become a public speaker and share this. It just sort of, it happened. And the same thing with the book. I never sat down to write a book. What happened was that the night before Yassi's Leviathan, I was in his room and I was looking at all these different things and I was remembering just so many little bits of, of his life. And I had this fear, which I know is very, very common for parents who lost children, especially children who didn't get married, didn't leave children. So it's like the end of a line. And I had this, this fear of like, who's going to remember him? This tremendous sense of me and my husband are really the keepers of the memories and his siblings. But that's it. It ends with us. And it just felt so overwhelmingly devastating that you have this whole life of 23 years and then there's nothing, there's nothing in the world for it. Even then, I didn't think I'm going to write a book to remember him. What I thought was I must, at least for me and my husband and my children, and I was hoping to have grandchildren, now I do at that point, but wasn't the a grandmother, let them at least know who Yossi was. So I started to write down, I, I called it the book of Yossi, but I really wasn't thinking of it as a book. It was just for myself. And I started to write down every memory I could of this kid And it was like, I spent most of that night before the funeral, just writing and writing like frantically. I remember like the the stories were like tumbling over my fingers. I couldn't type quickly enough and I'm pretty quick, (laughs) Um, just writing down what I could remember. And then it evolved during the shiva after we buried him, people were like saying things and I was experiencing different things. And I started to write those things too. And I, you know, I just journaled a lot and then I put it away pretty much after the first year. I think it sat for five years. I didn't touch it. I thought of it as a journal. Um, And I, the public speaking became more and more, I was doing it a lot and people started to ask me for a book because when you get up for 45 minutes, an hour, you can't give the whole of it. I wasn't thinking about writing the book. And then I remembered that I had journaled and I went back to it and it was so there and so real. And so I, I worked it and I called the book, even if I'm not, because when Yossi was a kid, he was six, seven, he was young. I was rushing one morning, we're getting everybody out the door. And I kind of just like yelled out to him, See, there's bagels on the counter if you're hungry. And he said, because he was this kind of a kid, he said, even if I'm not. I'm like, what? And then he did his darshaning. He loved to the darshan these things, especially his own things that he came up with. And he's like, you said there's bagels on the counter if I'm hungry. The bagels are not on the counter if I'm hungry. The bagels are on the counter even if I'm not hungry. Meaning they're there anyway." And it became this thing of even if I'm not, and I remember I was shopping and the the salesperson said to me, hi, my name is Anna if you need anything. And I'm thinking, your name is not Anna if I need anything. Your name is Anna even if I don't need anything. (laughs) So it became like, even if I'm not, but then I I got to it in a more serious way. Even if I'm not, means it's there anyway. And I realized, you know, that whole first year, what was this journey? It was trying to find the comfort and the strength and the answers. What do we hold on to? When, when, when the floor falls out, you know? And I realized that all the answers that are in, we have sparring, we have books, we have people who are wise, we have knowledge of our own and we can find knowledge these days, it's available. And we have resources within ourselves too. We have nishama, capacity for soul, to hang on, to believe, to see a bigger picture. It's just a matter of accessing it. And so the realization came to me, it's there anyway. All the comfort and the wisdom that I need, it's there, it's ready even if I'm not. So it's kind of like Yossi would have gotten a kick out of it because he, he named the book. But that's really what it's about. It's about, you know, we crave this. We crave real. We want to be bonded within ourselves to our own strength, not to be disconnected from that. We want to be bonded to other people. We want to be able to feel our bond with Hashem. So this book is that journey in all those ways, connecting.
0: The journey through the year And and the book becomes a little bit less heavy as we go through the year. Talk to us a little bit about the grief process. And I know that you're part of a group called Our Tapestry, because I have a friend on the group of mothers Mm -hmm. who've lost children. Um, Talk to me about grief within the from community grief when a mother's mourning a child, which is so much different than mourning a sister or a grandparent or a parent, because we're not supposed to bury our children where, you know, we, we hold a child in our hands and we have hopes and dreams and visions. And he was right at the cusp of this whole new journey. And let's talk a little bit about what that means as a from
1: woman. Okay. So, you know, we talk a lot, there's, there's known things about grief that there is, uh, you know, the stages and all that, which we can talk about soon, but the truth is about grief in general. People ask, you know, do you ever get over it? Do you grieve all the time? I think that grief evolves. I think what happens is that when there's a trauma, there is a certain brokenness. There is a certain vulnerability. Like I I think now about things that happened to me in my childhood. There was some tough stuff. I developed certain reactions. So when I'll go into certain situations or people will say something or something will remind me of it, my body will tell me. Um, and we have that a lot. We have that feeling of, I want to run away, or our heart starts beating quickly, or our stomach clenches. And those are, they're really messages from our body saying, this hurts, be careful. So when we talk about grief, you might see somebody who is, they look fine, they wearing makeup, and they're out of the simcha, they're, they're talking. But what ends up happening with grief, really, after you work through the initial... Acute level, and you know, we can talk to the stages of grief, but the bottom line is once you're past that, what ends up happening is it's almost like carrying around a bruised, uh, like an injury or something, and you learn to be very tender. I, I still won't read um, a story about, let's say, a baby who is sick, especially if there's one of these storybook endings. You know, I wish everybody well, but it's, it's just hard for me to go there. Um, weddings are very difficult for me for a long time. So I think what grief becomes. And I'm not talking about the first week or even the first year, but after that, I think what grief becomes is a, a a tenderness, a protection. We put out these around ourselves. We put up certain uh, ways of protecting ourselves. Sometimes they're very, very useful. Sometimes they're actually destructive. So we need to be careful because in the beginning, you know, I couldn't cry at the very beginning. So there was that very, very strong shock. And then there was crying all the time and not wanting to see people, which is probably, you know, it's part of it, but it evolves more into functioning again, but learning if it's healthy, which is what I'm working towards, learning how to stay safe without making it about only about that that grief. It's I saw it's very very easy to fall into it and become really an incorrigible person. It's really really easy, and people ask me all the time, "How did you do it? How do you do it? How do you breathe? How do you go through this?" Honestly. There's really not a choice because in the beginning, people will, you know, put up with you and you could cry and you could complain. And, but at a certain point, everybody's got stuff. People needed me, my husband, my children, myself. I had to, to live. So you really don't have a whole lot of choice because if you feel entitled to completely sink into it because you're the person with the saddest person, saddest story in the room. At a certain point, you're just going to lose all the other relationships. So grief doesn't leave. It's always there. I feel like I walk around kind of shielding myself, trying not to get hurt too much, but it does change you. There's one part that I, I really, really feel is very important to know. The capacity for, for sadness, if you're able to allow that, and sometimes a loss like this forces you. A lot. Sometimes we can protect ourselves, we can pretend people do that. They deflect, they push away. They, but with this kind of loss, I didn't have that luxury, um, not for a moment. So I had to feel the full sadness. And with it, once you have the capacity to feel... With it is a deep wellspring of joy. I am an incredibly exuberant bubby. The opening of feelings. Once you're feeling deeply, you're feeling deeply. And I have tremendous appreciation. It's kind of like the first meal after a fast, you know? So it's not all about walking around broken and horrible. And it really evolves. It really changes as time goes on. And when we have someone we love is, is going through it, we need to remember that.
0: I don't know you personally, but when I was reading the book, I definitely felt like that that you were a joyful person also prior to, to yesi, like that comes through very, very clearly. So it's not like, I don't think that you found joy that wasn't there. You just refound your joy, maybe on a higher level, but correct me if I'm wrong. Again, I don't know you, but it it does seem like you were a naturally joyous type of person who, you know, fun you know there was there there was fun through the book and I think that's what really like threw me for a loop Uh, it's a book about grief but there was like moments where you're like oh that could have been my you know like there's these funny interactions you have with your kids and like these goofy like and you see that also through the books it's just like by the way those moments got to me much more than the like heavier the grief that you feel today 11 years later is obviously very different and maybe the intensity of the emotions and the anger that, you know, we did see a little bit of that in the book as well. From an outsider's perspective, can we talk a little bit about, the you know, honoring the stages that someone's going through in the initial portions
1: of grief? Yeah. So one of the things that was so helpful about the book, because I didn't write it now, I wrote it as a journal. So if I would have written it today, trying to recapture it, I think it would have sounded a little bit more... Um, it just would have been less authentic. It would have been fabricated in a lot of ways, trying to like, go back to that woman because the woman I am today is not that woman. So what makes the book work is that, that I journaled very raw and honest feelings. I did, of course, I worked on the book and I edited it, but the truth is it was very, very real. And what you said about the joy, which is interesting to me, the book is people th- I uh, say to me all the time from talks and also after you know, people that have read the manuscript tell me they laugh and they cry. And they're intertwined, sometimes in the same sentence. The reason that the book is goofy and funny is really Yossi was funny. It was so intertwined. It was like, for example, the very first night after he died, it was a Friday night. And I was I was shaking. I was shaking from shock and I couldn't get warm. There was something in me that was, which is a, a reaction to shock. I couldn't stop shaking. And I remember thinking, I'm cold. I'm, I'm, I'm cold in my bones. I was so shell-shocked. And then I had, I remember, because this is how I kept working, I remembered a comment that Yossi had made, which is like, he always liked the house very, very cold. I liked the house very warm. So he was going, you know, put on the air conditioning, I'm putting on the heater. And I remember once we had a room full of people and I made the room comfortable for me and Yossi walked in and he announced, I grew up in a very warm home, 87 degrees. <laughs> so here I am that Friday night. It was just a few hours after Yossi had died. We hadn't even buried him yet because we ran into Shabbos and I'm shaking and I'm in shock. And then I remember this line, so the book is, is that because they came at the same time. I was remembering frantically remembering all the things he said and all his quirks, and at the same time, I was in the throes of very acute grief. So the book only covers that beginning. but as far as the stages of grief, what I learned is that they really not neat stages that we start in one and move our way through and you know graduate, okay, done with, done with the you know the first step denial and all that. But there is a truth to it. I think that we need to know that when we go into it, we bring to whatever happens to us all the history of everything before. There was no question when Yelsey died that the babies came up a lot more than they had, you know, just on a regular day. I worked through the grief of the babies, but when Yelsey died, I had to work through it again because there was that feeling of, I've already been battered and banged up and here we go again. When the babies were sick, I worked through everything of my childhood. Oh, I, This is not fair, that is not fair. So there's no question that, we don't start with a clean, sta- uh, clean slate. We bring to it our personality and what happened to us. But as far as the grief, yes. So the denial, the shock is very big in the beginning, especially if it's a sudden death. And I still have it now. Once in a while, I I pause and I say, my goodness, most of my children are dead. Or I'm not going to get to speak to Yossi until Mashiach comes. And there's like, I can't believe kind of thing. So you go in and out of it. And the same thing with, you know, they talk about bargaining. And I always understood bargaining as making deals with, with God. You know, please, if you don't do this, which I didn't get much of a chance to do but actually the way that uh, some of the psychologists explain the bargaining is more going back and saying, if only, and I wish I had. And I did do some of that because there was some guilt there. Yossi went scuba diving. My husband told him it's not safe. And I said, you know what? He's 23 years old. Let him go. So there was that going back. But as a from Jew, we know that there's no such thing as a mistake. And we, if you have that, we really held on to that. If you have that, as a mindset, we are imperfect, we do the best we can, and sometimes things are bigger than us, and sometimes we make mistakes, but the plan, the plan is not really in our hands. So I think that with that step of if only, and what if, and all that, if we really trust in Hashem, which this book and this, our life is about that, you know, the struggle to to make it real, we know the concepts, I had learned the concepts. Anyone can learn the concepts are available, make it real, then we'll do less of that. And then there is the the depression, which honestly, I think some people are are prone to clinical depression. And if they are, then a loss can trigger it. But other than that, I think it's more, I saw it more as sadness, which I think we come and go in and out of. You can be sad and happy at the same time. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) I became a grandmother the week we finished uh, the Akkadosh Fayasi. I was so crazy over my grandson. But he was named for my son. You want crazy making? There's crazy making. We finally had a baby in the family. <laughs> he's named after ELC, which brings up all the pain, but he's the most delicious baby in the world. So, you know, you can have that unless it's a clinical depression, which people do need to be careful of because sometimes it can trigger. It can, if somebody has tendencies or vulnerabilities to that. But generally, if a person is, for the most part, more balanced and can pretty much be resilient as far as any human being can be without extra. Psychological, um, what's the word? But uh, risks, let's say, or you know, vulnerabilities. It's sadness more than depression, and then it ends with um, oh, anger. Okay, I can't ignore the anger. That was my biggie. That kind of tantra me. It's not fear and me again kind of thing. And I had to work very hard on that. That's where all the Hasidic philosophy comes in. You know, there are no mistakes. Hashem runs the world. Everything that happens to us is the journey of our soul. The Yassi soul continues to exist. Um, I'm still working on it. It's a constant. It's again and again and again. And even what we call the Hashlamah, the acceptance, it's not a neat stage. It's a sense of Hashem is in charge. He will give me the strength. If I'm having a bad moment, I'm having a bad moment. At this moment, maybe in another moment, I will... I guess, get more strength, you know, I mean, life is that we're constantly having to deal with things, accept them, deal with the sadness it brings, maybe the anger, the bargaining, definitely, again and again, I mean, I'm getting older, getting older, it comes with constant readjusting, we lose things, we lose, you know, things, opportunities, plus sometimes we lose physical capacity, we're constantly readjusting and saying, okay, so how do I make this work? How do I make this okay? It's how life is. And I think with the five stages of grief, again, I just really found for me, and I, I believe it's true for a lot of people, you can't not feel when the loss is big enough. There's no pushing it away. There's, we can do it with some things. People do a lot, a lot of covering up. But with a big loss, you don't get that luxury, which in some ways is a tremendous bracha because, again, the capacity to feel opens up wellsprings of joy and of love and of gratitude. So I have two questions. Is
0: You reference um, the book of Yassi. Is this like an offshoot of the book of Yassi?
1: Or is the book of Yassi something you
0: wrote privately for yourself? No, the book
1: of Yassi became this book.
0: This I didn't book. use all
1: of it. I, I kept some, I protected like, you know, some things about my husband's story is my husband's story. My teenage daughter was from, that's her story. Um, and I didn't use all of it because it was too long. <laughs> but the book of Yassi, it was where this book was drawn from. Every memory of things people said, it's real because I during Shiva, I was writing constantly. I was scribbling into a notepad and then putting it into my, my laptop later. Uh, many, many nights, I sat with my laptop and I was frantically typing everything. That, and it became not only, you know, the memories were very, were very, very much, you know, in the book. A lot of whatever I could remember of him, which was initially what I had started to do, but everything that happened ended up in that book, which is why the book that ended up being, even if I'm not, is so real because I wrote it then. So it's, a, it's a, an edited, shortened version.
0: Okay. And you talk about working through things, right? So you referenced this, you know, as a thinking it's, you are a principal of the school, so you're obviously highly intelligent. Um, So was a lot of this like an intellectual process or was there like therapy? And what, what was involved in moving forward from this deep anger and this deep sadness and this, this first initial year?
1: There was, because it was a sudden death. So it came with a shock and, for that, I actually did need help. I did EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and restructuring, maybe I can't remember what the last one is. Um, but basically EMDR is a, a shock therapy that was for me very, very effective. I also, uh, the therapist that did it to me also did EFT, which is a form of tapping. And we did affirmations, that was very helpful. Um, I also went to Israel. I met Shari Mandel, whose um, son was actually born the same summer as Yossi, but he died 10 years earlier. And she had written a book and she had started a foundation. And I met a couple, the Haymans, they're an incredible couple. Um, they lost their only child, um, who was pregnant with her first child. So they lost their daughter and all, you know, any grandchildren that would have come. And they they were a tremendous resource for me, not only because they, their loss was so I don't know how to word to I don't know how to describe it. Um, all encompassing very much. Yeah. But also because of the kind of people that they are, Mrs. Same was NIFTA recently, but um, they, they really, they really helped me. So I think that that helped. I, I did have help. It wasn't simply that I leaned into all the facilities. So it was both. It's also that because we, I had learned, I understood, and I was very, very clear. There was no doubt in my mind that there's another world that we start off as a soul. This world is for the work that us all gets and everything that happens to us is a material to use. There's no mistakes. There's no, you know, if only I could tweak this a little bit. You know, we, we tend to do that sometimes. And if I could just change this child or my personality just a bit, or my husband, or I could just have a husband when I don't, or whatever it is that people want, just tweak the life plan a little bit, It'd be so much better. It doesn't work like that. And I knew that, but I had to, I knew it in my head. I had to actually feel it. So that was the work. Um, so it was it wasn't intellectual in the sense that I had to go study a lot of things. I did read some books about soul. I was curious about. You know what what happens to the neshama. There was that, but a lot of it was trying to access what I already knew in a way that it would be meaningful to hold on to it, to trust it. And the rest of it was there was some physical healing too. I right? the shock and the the actual the grief was physical for me. Uh, so I was struggling with that. I couldn't sleep, and I actually had a lot of tightness in my chest. It was all that. So I you know, I needed help for that. So it was some physical soothing also. The EMDR was very good for that. My husband was incredibly patient. I talk, 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 talked my friend's ears off. Um, That helped a lot, time. Um, But really, yes, the chasiddahs, even if I wasn't always able to allow it to comfort me, I knew it was there. And I have all the books. I knew I could open this book and learn, again, remind myself we're only in this world for a short time and everything we do in this world is preparation. For what happens to us in the next world, and we have a job to do. We have to refine ourselves. We have to make this world better. It's temporary. Hashem is right here. All those concepts—they were always in the background—and that made it much easier for me.
0: And you also talk about two very special people in the book who really jump out: the Fradel and Yehudis. So I don't know who Yehudis yes. is. I actually asked my sister. I'm like, "Who's Yehudis?" She didn't answer. Me. I'm like, "It's her neighbor." She's like, "From the from the building from the." House. She was trying to figure out, <laughs> but um you you're very lucky that you have people who like jumped in and were very present through your process um in a very very real way so that's also a huge huge bracha um and you know I, i think we should all have friends like that that's amazing and fabulous um could we, I don't know if your daughters would be okay with it. It wasn't on the list of questions, but could we talk a little bit about your daughter's process, the daughter who was living at home? Cause you do touch on it a little bit and how she almost like gets frustrated with your grief and frustrated with how, how you were, um, processing it in, in a way that maybe her teenage self wasn't ready to like, accept.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, teenage is teenage, you know. Um, and that was a hard hit for her because, you know, when you're 15 years old, you're, as it is, trying to, you know, navigate. And you have to remember also, she was the only child living at home. My other two daughters were already out of the house. So she's, she got like a real front row seat. Um, the, the miracle of it is that, you know, when she was born, she's the miracle child that was born between all the children. And we knew she was a miracle from the day she was born. And after Yasser's death, I realized it again because she was the the reason in a way that I had to really get it together. I wish I could say it was enough, you know, just for myself, because we're worth it even for ourselves. It doesn't have to be somebody else that makes us do well. And of course for my husband, but when you have a child in the house and she was really struggling with the fact that I was crying all the time in Yossi's room, um, that kind of forced me because I recognized that her being around, she's a miracle. The fact that when she was born, she was a miracle. It doesn't stop being a miracle when she's 15 and Yossi's death doesn't make it that she's no longer, you know the miracle child who deserves a mom. So th- it took a while, but we, we worked through that. I think that for her it was very frightening because she couldn't really sum up, she didn't know how it would end. In other words, I, I knew as an adult that I needed to cry it out, talk it out. But I understood, because I had grieved before, that it will not always be this acute, this messy, um, but for her, I mean, she, even though the babies died, my kids, we, we made a real effort. They didn't grow up in a house that was all about sickness and death. We made a very big effort and sometimes even to an extreme because yumtap was hard for me. I would go all out crazy on yumtap and invite a lot of people and a lot of food. So she didn't grow up in a house that was marked by the babies who died in that way. She knew about them and two of them were after she was born, but it didn't hang over her childhood. She remembers a happy and pretty, you know, okay childhood. And here her mom is not working, we're crying in Yassi's room all the time. She was also very, very close with Yasi. Um, you know, he was the big brother protector. It was kind of like the two of them against the two middle ones who were closer in age. So <laughs> he was very, very, very close with her. So she had her own grief, which she really didn't understand at all. Um, so that was, it. but I don't think that it was abnormal. I think it was very much within the range of a normal grief reaction. Um, the part that makes it more complicated is that when we're grieving, We have our own grief, and then we have to deal with the people around us. So at the beginning, she was worried about me. She managed to shift it to the point at one point where I became frantic about her. Uh, That's how it goes. My husband and I had the same thing. We were each grieving Yossi very deeply, and then we we were worried about each other. So it's all those factors. And she grew up from this very quickly. She's a remarkable, sensitive, um, well-adjusted, deep-feeling, just wonderful wonderful person and she she's real there's no superficial there's no fake with her there's no nonsense with her she gets it and at the same time she's she's fun loving and she's sensitive to other people she's one of the kindest people you know that I know so that was the process but yeah it was dicey for a while because she was young and she was petrified which we
0: could all understand um yeah yeah so Hashem, a lot of the listeners who are listening haven't gone through huge tragedies with their children but we're all in situations where we almost feel like this is like an elephant in the room and we're unsure what to say or how to say what's going to make things worse what's going to make things better because we don't understand the situation so we 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 tread this line of I want to be there for the person, but I don't want to overstep. So what do I yeah. say? And sometimes we are almost on the side of caution where we don't say anything. And then the person who's there is like, can you just talk about this, please? <laughs> yeah,
1: like, exactly.
0: Um, so what what advice do you have for the people on the other side who are not sure? Like, where where do we tread the line of sensitivity while still honoring this very, you know, real situation? I add one more layer to this. I, I think that there's also a very big difference if it's someone who is in this person's life actively and whether it's like a community member, like if you're going to an event and everyone's like, oh, yeah, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And you're like, can we stop, please? Like, I haven't said two words to you in like five years. Um, it, I, I think that we just don't have guidance on how to behave and how
1: to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't give it to you because it's so different. Um, I could just tell you in general a little bit uh, what to know. First of all, you know, in the very beginning, it's really about the person who went through the loss, like John Shiva and all that. But afterwards, you know, for a long time, I felt, and I had to work about this, I felt entitled. I'm the person with the biggest loss, and therefore it's all about me. Everybody, everybody's struggling one level or another. And I think that it's really on, on both parts, both, both sides, when you go see someone who's going through a loss, because there's so many people who are extremely lonely, even if they're married or surrounded by people, or grappling with their own stuff that nobody knows. So I think that we need to have sensitivity on both sides. I Meaning, there isn't a victim and then a giver. It doesn't really work that way. I'm not talking about during the you know, levaya and the shiva in the acute stage. I'm talking about later. Um, I had to learn that because I felt entitled for a long time to all the oxygen in the room because I lost most of my children and I'm the drama, you know, the, the, the pity party, here I come. But that's not really the truth. I think we need to be sensitive and understand that somebody can, like we said before, look so, so put together, but it's, it's not easy times and people struggle, even if everything is right in their lives, but that means um, they could be struggling with their own anxiety, with their own stuff. And, and then there's so much that's hidden. And the more I talk to people, the more I hear it, I pretty much know that everyone is fighting at some level for okayness, moment by moment sometimes. But that said, as far as what you can do for another person, I think that you need to know that sometimes the person themselves, the reactions change. So be ready for that. Um, also people are different. Asking is very, very helpful. My, my siblings learned this in the beginning. They had no clue. Uh, ask, would this be helpful? Do you want to talk about him? Um, the biggest thing that, that I found, though, was that a lot of people were afraid of the, the uh, enormity of the, and the intensity of the grief, and they made me feel a little bit like I was a burden. I was overreacting, I'm talking about close people. It's not on the community to, to carry my grief. My close friends were amazing about it. Um, so it's really, it's, it's smart that you divided it. I think that's a smart way to, to think about it because the people that are close, I think about it like if somebody that you love, if it's a sibling or you know somebody that's very close, a close friends, and they have a, an injury, a physical injury that may be unpleasant to look at, but you care about them, so you'll help them. They need to be bandaged or whatever it is. It's the same thing with grief. It's hard to look it in the face. It's inelegant, you know. And yet, if you care about someone, you have to make the room for that. Um, and I would, I would add there that if it's done in a healthy way. It will pass. People cannot keep up that level. I was sure that I would spend the rest of my life doing what I did that first year, which is, you know, going to the water and crying and staying in his room. But I didn't. I I stopped because with a healthy process, you get it out of your system to a certain way. This the deep mourning, and then it gets quieter. That said, I think it's also very very important to acknowledge, and if you don't know, to ask. Because I tend to talk about my grief. I know people who lost children who really really. Don't want to talk about it. They prefer just to quietly learn or do whatever. Everybody's different, and there is no one answer. This is the formula. There are a lot of things that you need to be careful of. I mean, I still remember it. It feels like somebody just plunged a knife in. I was sitting at my own sh- my own son's shiva, you know, and somebody said, "All my children are coming for Hanukkah." I never forgot the comments because I thought, "All my children." I could never say, "All my children." Um, people gave advice. People who didn't lose children. Gave advice, people lectured, uh, people compared. You know, I know this one, I know that one. By the Um, way, Shiva
0: houses always throw me for a loop. I was at my friend's house, my friend Shiva, when she lost her son, and a lady walked in and she started crying loudly. She was, oh my gosh. And she did this for like 20 minutes. And I said to my friend, I said, Do you know her? Never met her. I'm like, What (laughs) what did you like? You came into someone's Shiva house and made this all about you. And, yeah. like, you're the best person because you're commiserating. I'm like, can you be quiet? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Like, people
0: yeah. behave very, like, maybe because it's just uncertainty that, like, but I know that my mother, when, when we were teenagers and, you know, when she let us go to our first ever house, she gave us rules. Don't talk and let, until you're spoken to. Follow the line of conversation that the person who's sitting is. Don't add to the conversation. If they want to joke and keep it light, then that's what you're doing. If they want to talk, just listen. Mm -hmm. There are are rules that should be taught to people who are going to a Shiva house. It's not a social event. It's not an event where it's about your processing of their tragedy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think people don't know that. I really, I I don't think it comes from a place of like maliciousness, but
1: I think people are just clueless. So I think that one of the things that helps, and again, we're going to divide into the close friends and the family members as a bigger burden on them. But, for, but this really can apply on both levels. I think that the biggest gift you can give anybody, first of all, what you're talking about is respect and you know, really walking in and not making it about you. And that's really where it starts. It's really about the other person. It sounds like, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course it's about the other person. I came to see them. But if you really put yourself in the other person's place, at least to the extent that we can, and I'm not very good at this either. I work on it all the time. The sense of what does the other person need right now? And if you don't know, then at the very least, you're coming in with humility. You're not coming in with, I have this story, I have an agenda. There were people who I could see that they had come prepared to give me a speech. Uh, They wanted, uh, somebody gave me a whole story about the Baba Sali, And I I wasn't, I I found it actually very hurtful because I didn't ask her. And all I could think of as she was talking is, how many children do you have? And Barfoshan, they're all alive. Shut your mouth. You know, like that kind of, it creates resentment. Had I reached out to her. And said to her could you please inspire me there were times when i did want to hear and i did want to learn but she didn't come looking at what i needed she came ready with what she had to say and there was one point when somebody went too far and i actually took all the cheers Remember, I was also in a state of shock and, and and there was there was some rage there, which the book, I think, is picks up very well. I, I, I'm honest about it. I did not edit it out because I wanted people to... I wrote the book I needed to read, which is, this is normal now and you'll get through it. But I, I just folded up all the chairs. And there was a woman who would come and she's like, but I came, I came to sit. So she had come to do her mitzvah and she wanted to sit. I did not want people to sit at that point. I didn't want to look at anybody. I didn't want any comfort, particularly from people who didn't get it. And I knew they didn't get it. So I think that... For somebody who is not very close, at least the humility to try to make it about the other person, it's not easy. And for somebody who's, who's close and is going to be support, like I was lucky to have very good friends, um, to be fully present in another person's mess, to really let yourself feel with them. And it's very scary, but here's what I've learned. If you do it fully, if you let yourself feel with the other person, you don't shush them when they're crying, you don't uh, try to make it better and clean it up. If you can do that for them, they will. They're not. They're not going to stay hysterical forever. They will work their way through it. And then there's something else, you know, during Shiva, which applies to everybody. I think people try to clean it up and reframe it into their own way to make it better. So they which and they end up saying things that are well, sometimes absurd. So somebody said to me, there were some nice stories going around about Yossi, and I actually appreciated it. The somebody organized. I don't even know if they stand never thanked anyone because I don't know who did it. But they somebody collected a kufuz a, a bacherim we had been with him through all the different stages. He had been in Benoit, and in Berlin, and in New York. And they sent representatives. They sent a, a group of buffer, And they were so sweet. they clearly been coached. You know, they came, they stood in front of us, they told stories. And it, it it was very, very nice. Because I thought somebody took the time to send us a representative from every stage of Yossi's life. And I, I was so moved by it. And people were listening to the stories because they were telling the stories. And the one of the women came up to me, and I guess she needed to make this loss make sense in her mind. And she says to me, your son was a tzaddik. And I said to her, no, he, he played his drums too loudly. So I think he wasn't, he was probably just mediocre. And she looked at me like, I'm crazy. But what I was trying to tell her was he didn't need to be a tzaddik for me to be grieving. I loved him. He was wonderful. He learned that he was kind, that he was warm. And he was, but he was my child, my imperfect, perfect child. And it doesn't need to be framed up in a way that you could say, oh, he was a tzaddik. This is a big loss. Don't. Take the loss and start reshaping it to make it work for you. So we talk about other
0: people having sensitivity, but I saw a, a lot of sensitivity almost like on your part where you shielded your real feelings from other people. Also, like you weren't ready to open up to everyone. I like as much as you yeah. opened up in this book, or as much as your feelings spilled over in certain instances, there were times where you, you know, you left your shopping cart in the store because you were like, "I'm yeah. not doing this." Um, yeah. So. Can we talk a little bit about that as well? Like, what were you shielding people from? Were you shielding people from your grief? Was it because grief is not socially acceptable? Like, what, what was
1: happening there? I think it was more that I didn't have the tools yet to go back into, quote, normal life. I know, really, that there's no such thing as normal life. And we're all making our way through this world the best that we can. But it wasn't even so much about the other people. Um, because... Really, really, most people, people are generally kind. Yes, some of them are clumsy. But in the very beginning, like the time that I left the shopping cart, it was simply because I wanted something from another woman. I wanted to talk about my son and she didn't know what to do with it. So, yes, if she would have been a little bit more sensitive, like because I went to loss, if any bereaved mother ever will say anything about a child, I will drop everything and stand there and listen. Because I know how important that is for parents who lost children to talk about their children. But Baruch Hashem, she has not lost a child. And she didn't have that. So, yeah, I was like, I needed to talk and she didn't let me. And someone said, how are you? And walked away. And yes, I left my, I left my, my shopping cart and I ran out. So it was a little bit about um, we need to be sensitive one to the other. We need to ask whenever you interact with someone. And I'm going to divide it into the two parts because I take responsibility too. I was not ready. And we need to understand and acknowledge when somebody comes back into the world after a devastating loss, especially with the shock. In the beginning, and later, ten years later, a person who lost a child by sudden loss, or a person who lost a child by illness, it's not that different. But at the moment, it is because it was—it's so abrupt. It's crazy-making. You have a child there in the morning, and then kaboom, no goodbye, and suddenly I didn't have. So that—that that part was part of it too. So, putting all that aside, going out in the world is hard, especially after a shock, because just not ready. You're dealing with crazy. You know what? How could you have a, a son one in the morning and then not have him that night? when all this stuff is there and he's he's a child, what do you mean? How how do you not say goodbye when it's forever? So going out into regular world, and even people are dealing with hospitals, I had it with the babies too. I'll be talking to the doctor and they'd be saying, oh, the baby's lung collapsed, oh, we need to do this. And then I'd have to go to to buy milk, you know? So there's that crazy, it's very difficult. Putting, that's one issue. But the other thing is really that there's other people and then there's me. So if we could learn to, when somebody starts to speak, to put ourselves out of the way for a moment and say, okay, this person is saying this. What is she asking me for? What does she need? It's not that hard if we make it about the other person. I do it naturally because now, as far as these things, because I've I've breathed, So I know, I recognize immediately. When any any bereaved mom starts to talk, but she needs to talk about a child now. So, but I think even you know, Baruch Hashem, most people have not lost children. They can still ask themselves, what is this mother asking of me now? You know, because I wanted to tell her to remind her about the time when my son went to her house and all the boys, you know, ran to eat breakfast, and he stood on the side and said breakfast. and I wanted to tell her, and she got scared. You know, because it, I there may have been a tear or two. You know, I I think I I don't remember exactly until later. Somebody asked me, your skin looks good. How do you, what And you doing? I said tears and I laughed with her, but people are scared of that or they don't write a book that tells you, here's exactly what to do during the Shiva, Here's what to do during the year. Here's what you can do five years later. But if you stop for a moment and just make it about the other person, you can ask yourself, what does she need now? What is she asking me for? And it's just a sensitivity one to the other. That would have helped a lot. I probably maybe would have run out of the store anyway because I wasn't really ready. Because I saw the crackers that he liked, and because it was, you know, the stores full of the food that he liked. So, some of it was me. I had it with babies too. I would see a baby bottle or a woman holding a baby. They might have done nothing wrong, and I couldn't handle it. So, it's really on both sides. And I had to learn how to navigate the world again. I had to learn that just because somebody is smiling at a baby, they're not me- meaning to bring up the fact that not only did my babies die, but I couldn't have more babies because we had the risk. And it's not always somebody out to hurt you the world is full of triggers and full of things that remind us of what we don't have and people people see that everywhere people are struggling with their children and they see children behaving and it's like oh look how good that looks or people who are not married every couple looks like they're the most loving it's like that we do that and and it's not necessarily jealousy it's pain so we have to take responsibility for that am I ready to navigate I wasn't ready to be in the store I had to be in the store so I did it it's a good thing because if we waited until we're ready, I don't know. <laughs> a lot of people were just sitting around. We get forced into it. And that's good too. But it's both. So I had to recognize my own um, really struggle to do normal again. You know, the first time I drove carpool was such a big deal for me. It didn't show, but for me, it was a major, major ordeal. I had to do it. You have to go back at some point, And I had to acknowledge that, you know, this is the process. And for other people, though, really, I think that you could, you could, tune into somebody with a little bit of effort. You won't get it perfect all the time because the people themselves don't know. You know, it's not, I don't know if I, I can't tell you now, if somebody would ask me, is it helpful that people ask you about your children? I'll tell you one thing, and this is a biggie. Don't ask people how many children they have. I have to tell you that this, I mean, it's 11 years. And I have to tell you now that when people ask me, the only thing I could say is, I don't know. I worked for years on being able to say, four rather than eight, because eight is like, oh, where's everybody? Oh, they also have the babies. I said, okay, there were babies. And I finally, I got through that. And when people would ask, I would just say four. It always hurt, but I would say four. But after Yossi died, I am still Yossi's mother. I cannot say 100%. three. Yeah. And I can't say four. And it becomes, oh, where is he? Four, where's his son? Is he learning? Is he married? I can't do it. Don't ask questions. People see people with a shape so they assume automatically married or, or children. Just don't right. ask. Don't ask. It's such a painful question. And I, I keep thinking, what can I say? And I don't know. I don't really, as someone I barely know. I really don't feel like doing the, I have one dead son and three daughters. I don't want to go there either. And I just, I, I always, I look at them and I say, I don't know. I am going to count. Y'all see, may as well count the babies. Oh, so I've got eight kids. I'm such a busy mom. Like how old are they? Where are we going with this? It's, so I think that that's also, I just, I've learned not to ask people pretty much anything unless they volunteer it.
0: Right. And I think that that's actually a very respectful way to navigate conversations. Like, let's see what the person wants to share. Yes, he was engaged. Yes. You talk about like the shock when she had to leave because she was part, she was going to be part of your family. And now she no longer was. I'm assuming she went on, she got married, has children. I'm assuming that I don't know who she is. It gets better. My husband is a mile.
1: My husband made grissom, I think, for four of her sons. I love that. Yeah. Are you, so you're still in touch? Like, do you still have some sort of relationship with her? So I have to give her credit because I was in a very unhealthy state and I would have grabbed her and held on to her. I just didn't want to lose anything else. I thought if I lost Yossi, it's not fair I should lose her too. Um, so she, I, I know that she had some guidance and she she held firm. She left us during the Shiva and I reacted pretty badly to that. It was like, you know, usually if you don't have, if it's an ex-daughter, it's because of a divorce or something happened, but this wasn't that, you know, I was like, hey, one minute, you know? So that was, but she, she got good guidance and she, she was there for the Shiva and then she left, she left towards the end of Shiva and then, she came back to visit us. Uh, she came She came to the house to talk to us. She went to Yossi's grave and she said goodbye. And then she moved on with her life. She got married. She lives about uh, 45 minutes away from us in LA. We're not close in the way that she's a big part of our lives. We're respectful. There's a always a sense of, um, I think we could have liked each other very much, but I don't have a place I don't belong. She has a mother-in-law. Nobody wants more than one mother-in-law, you know? She's got that. Um, <laughs> we were very, very grateful and touched and really, really honored that she, you know, that my husband did the brissom for her sons. I, I I felt that that was a lot emotionally, but my husband tends to be better at just like, well, it's a bris, like the technical part, you know, he has that in him. And he just did the brissom. Um, he didn't go into it a lot. I'm more like, I like to delve, like, what did that feel like? It was almost daughter-in-law, like, but he said, oh, the bris has to be the brissom, the bandaging, you know, that's how he functions, which is very important and good. Um, so there's a... It's a friendly relationship. And in the book, I write about her. All the names in the book are real. The only name in the book that's not is hers because she asked, I called her and I told her the book is coming and I asked her what she wanted us to do. And she felt like she didn't want somebody who knows Aurora children or somebody finding it before she's ready. So it's not a secret. Anybody could look up and see who he was engaged to. And there's nothing to be ashamed of in that sense. But I did, as per her request, I changed the name and I allowed her to choose her new name. Um, So no, we're not close, but there's nothing that it's not a bad relationship. It's simply, she has her life and you know, she's, she's entitled to that.
0: What would you like our listeners to walk away from our time together? What is your primary message that you hope people are getting from our conversation and from the book?
1: I think that uh, I think that whatever happens to us in this world it's part of the work and to recognize that we tend to if we can get away with it push through our days um, you know just try to not deal with real feelings if we can help it and I think that's sad because I think that if we can't deal with what's going on with us, we can't say to ourselves, okay, this is guilt. What do I do about it? Or resentment or anger or insecurity or shame or fear. Then we also can't do joy and we can't do relationships that way. So I think that if we're able to, to just pay attention, first of all, to our own, our own emotions that we can truly be there for another person. You cannot be a good listener to someone else and, and, help them deal with their emotions if you're not dealing with yours. So paying attention to that, I was forced into it, but it's a gift. It is the gift that comes with grief. Um, And I think also not to lose awareness. And this is, this awareness. Like you asked me before, was it intellectual work or emotional or spiritual work? It's all of them, but it begins with the intellectual knowing we know certain truths. We know that Hashem is everywhere. Nothing, nothing happens by accident. We know that our Nishamas. They existed long before we were here. They will continue to exist. Yossi still exists in an Heshamah level. We know that Hashem only does good. We know that there's revealed good that we're supposed to be asking for. We're supposed to make real. We're supposed to believe that it's here to the extent that we make it good. We know all these truths. Um, I think that we have to keep reminding ourselves. and what I have to do it all the time, too. It's an ongoing, which is that if it was true before the loss, it's still true. So to, first of all, to learn as much as we can, I'm not talking about books and books and books and books. I'm talking about a general sense of why are we in this world? What are we meant to be doing here? What's the point? And once we have that to remind ourselves every time we struggle, I struggle all the time with this, but I always work to come back to that. That's the book. It's to come back to the resources within our own souls our connection to other people in a very real way, by being real with our own emotions and therefore not being afraid to allow their emotions in. And our connection to Hashem in a real way, which can look like this, can look like, Hashem, I know that you are good and you are here, but right now I'm grappling, can you please give me a hand? Because I wanna get back to that truth. All those truths, are there, they're ready, even if I'm not.
0: Even if I'm not. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. And for everyone who does it, who doesn't see her she's smiling throughout the interview. So, (laughs) yes, um, definitely, as you're going to read the book, you're going to see the the ups, the downs, the happiness and the sadness and how it's really all intermingled. And thank you so much for spending today with
1: us. It was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed and grew. Original music of Shamil's niggin provided by Hazan David KTAC. We look forward to your input, feedback, and suggestions. We also have partnership opportunities available. Please email info at bodies Again, info at bodies with two S's. Thank you. МУЗЫКАЛЬНАЯ ЗАСТАВКА